0: Even in the way we investigate, this was also changed in the strategic plan, if you, if you uh, look at it. Um, for instance, witness-based testimony, we, I know we used to do that, but again, we said we we'll still do that, but we'll dwell more again into in, uh, alternative forms of evidence that we can have. Why? Because if you look at the Kenya case, one of the lessons is that you, 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 you interfere with witnesses and the cases can, can, can collapse.
1: This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net.
0: Justice plays an important role.
2: I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments.
0: Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished.
2: Proceedings will be
1: long and complex.
2: All right. Hi, welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Janet Anderson. And I'm Stephanie van den Berg. Thank you for tuning in to your International Justice podcast. And today is a different kind of a show because Stephanie went and did something all by herself. How could you, Stephanie? Well, I had a Reuters interview with Fatou Bensouda
1: and we had months and months of asking her and and having agreements that fell through and then finally she said yes. Um, And so we also pestered her for an asymmetrical haircuts interview, but she said she just couldn't find the time to do it before she left office.
2: Well, I suppose you're forgiven because that's quite a big and important interview to have got. And um, what I do know of what you've got out of it so far is that there were some really timely quotes about israel and palestine of course anything fatu bensuda has to say might be interesting to us generally but if you want to know about the israel palestine stuff like uh, i did in um, the last couple of days then do check out what stephanie has already written for reuters in her piece and we'll put a link to that in the show notes
1: Luckily, we managed to talk to her for over an hour and we got a lot more of Fatou Bensouda looking back, really, and talking about other things than just the breaking news stuff that Rogers was really interested in and that you kind of have to ask if you're a news agency.
2: Yeah, that's the kind of stuff we really like, you know, the stuff for the nerds. So um, just paint some picture to start with, Stephanie. What, what was it like? Um, how many were you? You know, was it just one on one? No, it was
1: me and my boss, Anthony Deutsch from Reuters, who you also hear in some of the clips asking very uh, sharp questions. And our camera woman uh, photographer, Piroshka, and then Fatou Bensouda was there. And two of her aides were also in the room to check that she didn't say anything that she shouldn't have to kind of guide her. I felt she was kind of nervous in the beginning. She really wants to say the right thing and to not have her words twisted and obviously we went in you know we had to ask a lot about Israel Palestine so she has to be really really careful to pick her words but i felt towards the end that she was uh loosening up
2: so what should we actually expect to uh to get out of uh, this episode.
1: Well, we use the audio of the interview that we didn't really use uh, for our news reporting. So you have a bit of, of Ben Bensouda basically saying goodbye to the ICC um, and explaining a bit of her uh, highlights and also challenges that she had. And I have to warn you, there's a bit of a squeaky chair that you'll hear occasionally because it had to be set up in a certain way for the cameras. And then, of course, my microphone had to be on the ground so as not to be on camera. So there is some uh, some squeaky chair action, but I thought it was uh, really, really interesting what she said. So we'll listen to it anyway.
2: I'm really excited to hear it. It's been um, quite a struggle not to actually listen to all of the clips that you've already selected. But um, we're going for the uh, You're Wrong About style. Um, I think if anybody knows that particular podcast, they'll know that uh, one of the Uh, contributors mainly Michael does all the research and picks all the clips and then Sarah um, reacts to the clips which she hasn't actually come up um, uh, against herself so that's what I'm planning I'm playing Sarah from You're Wrong About only I'm not going to swear as much as she does (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah and you're probably not going to sound as a woke uh, or hopefully it's not going to be the interview where I can't believe she said that which is, seems to be the you're wrong about style. I but will. Um, I'll say so let's I let's just get I just to the said show that. on the I road will do that. um I left out most of the comments on Israel-Palestine situation, um, but obviously she stressed that her office was monitoring current events. But we also asked her about the trouble with states not cooperating and if she feared a repeat of the Kenya case, which collapsed after the government refused to work with the court.
2: For those who aren't kind of so on top of uh, Kenya ICC, I mean, it's dim and distant past probably for some people, there were... Several different cases which came out of the post-election violence that happened in Kenya. It was instigated by Fatu Ben Souda's predecessor, who decided that he would try and go ahead with uh, cases um, from both sides in the violence. And as those people actually came into power, they really worked hard at making sure that these cases were very difficult for the Office of the Prosecutor to go ahead with, and you had all these witnesses dropping off uh, again and again. So it was really interesting to see how a state could manage to block, obfuscate, um, change how exactly um, something goes on at the ICC.
0: We're meant to have cooperation in, in order to be able to do it effectively. That is how this court was set up. We do our investigations, We have cooperation with states and even non-state parties to be able to advance our our cases. But if that doesn't happen, it doesn't mean that the office has to stop its work. You have to find ways. One advantage about the Kenya situation is that we've learned lessons. We have learned learned lessons about, about, unfortunately, the collapse of that case, mainly due to lack of cooperation and also witness interference we've had that. You, you saw the case that I, I had to bring uh, because of the witness interference we had with that with that situation. But as I said, we have learned lessons. Maybe we've learned a thing or two about doing things differently. And we also know the, um, the consequence, the risk of the case collapsing. We, we are also very much aware of that. And uh, we, we, we go with into these situations with our eyes open, but also to be able to see what can be done or what we have learned to apply to new situations for, the, for, for also obvious challenges that we will face.
2: Well, if she hadn't learned lessons out of it, I'd be really shocked because they've had an investigation into how they worked. We've seen results out of it. There's been I mean, there's still even a case going on at the ICC right now um, concerning potential sort of witness interference. So um, I'm glad to hear. Yeah, great, isn't it, that the OTP has actually learned some lessons out of it. But do you think, Stephanie, that they've, um, have we seen how they've applied those lessons learned anywhere else? Have they come up against this kind of problem again anywhere else yet?
1: Not yet, I think, but she also spoke a bit more uh, precisely about how they're managing investigations differently, um, also in how to get to top people, um, but also the kind of evidence they rely on. And here you hear also my Rogers colleague Anthony asking a question and you hear me talking, but I sound a bit distant because I was a bit further from the mic.
0: One of the things that um, I did with my team on assuming office and having the benefit of being the deputy prosecutor for the past eight years was to look into what are the good good things that have happened and what are the the things that needs to be improved. And because of that, the first thing that we we did was to, to look at the strategic plan and the way we do investigations. You will recall that previously, we used to talk about focused investigations, very focused investigations. But when, we, um, uh, when I took over, I said, we, we needed to uh, look at this again and have more in-depth investigation and uh, focus. Of course, we will with a focus, but also gradually starting mid-level and rising up uh, to, to, to the highest level. And this is what we have also uh, been doing. We think that in that way, we will uh, perhaps have less challenges Uh, in just starting right away from the top and then uh, confronting with difficulties. So these are changes that we we made and which we have been also uh, applying. Even in the way we investigate, this was also changed in the strategic plan, if you you, uh, look at it. Um, For instance, witness-based testimony. I know we used to do that, but again, we said we still do that, but we'll dwell more again into, into alternative forms of evidence that we can have. Why? Because if you look at the Kenya case, one of the lessons is that you, 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 you interfere with witnesses and the cases can, can, can collapse. So let us see what ways in which we can look at alternative forms of evidence. We, we tried to develop a forensic uh, section, for instance, uh, created the forensic sections and, and developed it, and uh, worked also closely with people who are outside uh, who, are, who are doing this thing. In fact, I have a, the, the forensic, uh, the advisory board. I have an advisory board that is uh, that spans the globe that, that uh, my, my office works with once a year we meet, but in between also um, referring to them for advice on various uh, forms. If you look at the Al Mahdi case, for instance, the way we presented the evidence. So these are all developments that we made as, as we went along just so that we could also um, uh, strategically um, change the way in which we investigate uh, uh, crimes. you can't manipulate a piece of forensic evidence the way you can manipulate a witness. There you go, there you go.
1: Do you Mm -hmm. see that also as kind of the future of international law? Because you have this Albert Fali case which is Mm -hmm. based uh, partly on Facebook and YouTube videos and I know there's talks with or consultations maybe with, with Bellingcat who's trying to figure out how to yeah. provide this kind of evidence yeah. to courts
0: like the ICC? I think it, will, if it if it doesn't change it, it will contribute hugely mm-hmm. to the way we investigate. Um, you, you talked about Erwal Fahli. It was completely or, or almost totally based on what we were able to get from the internet. And uh, we, this is how we presented the case, this is how we were able to get the judges. To, to issue arrest warrants against al walfali Ali. Um, again, I come back to the Al-Mahdi case. We were able to present the case, the actual location of where this was happening, 3, 3D, uh, to the judges as if they were sitting and looking at the location themselves. And this has also helped in proving the case and for, for the judges to, in the end, uh, find a guilty verdict on, on Al-Mahdi. So it's, I, I believe it's going to just evolve and develop further and it's going to form a very huge part of the way we investigate and present evidence before judges.
2: I think this is absolutely fascinating um, and great to hear that uh, that they've made so many strides. Uh, just one small side note, I mean, Almaty did plead guilty himself, so I think it's, you know, it would have been a bit strange if the judges hadn't actually found him guilty. In the end. But what it also made me think about was even in some more of the kind of traditional um, ways of investigating, um, they've relied on strong physical evidence as well, like in the Ongwen case, where you had the intercepts from uh, radio sort of communications between members of the Lord's Resistance Army. So um, I, I can really see how they need to turn to documentary, forensic, social media, you know, all of the most solid forms of evidence that they can. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously,
1: I mean, Israel-Palestine is an obvious case where uh, Israel's is now saying that they won't cooperate. But we, uh, of course, also asked about that other situation where there's been no cooperation from a government. And there's currently a lot going on with uh, Myanmar, uh, and the Rohingya investigation, which has been done uh, from Bangladesh, because Bangladesh is the state party, and so they they have that investigation ongoing. And obviously, there has been a coup in Myanmar, and there's a lot going on there. So we we asked her if um, if the coup and the violence that followed had hindered the progress in in the Bangladesh Rohingya case.
0: So at the moment, my uh, this investigation is ongoing. Of course, we've had challenges and difficulties because of the pandemic was one of them. Um, and we are hoping to be able to deploy back as soon. We were already going to Bangladesh. We were already vis- uh, visiting Cox's Bazaar, for instance, uh, but we had to slow down. We had to stop because uh, as it has affected the whole world, we also had a fair share of problems because of the, of the pandemic. And uh, maybe our immediate concern was that the investigations that are already ongoing would be affected, but so far it is not. And uh, we are not, I, I will be very clear, we are not directly engaging with any uh, coup authorities in, in Myanmar for the moment. Uh, we are not, because as I said, we don't have jurisdiction in Myanmar over what is happening there, because it's not a state party, unless we, ha- we were to have a referral from the UN Security Council or maybe there is a declaration from Myanmar itself accepting ICC's jurisdiction. We have not seen that happen yet. So at the moment, we are, we are really focusing on how to um, advance our investigations into the Myanmar-Bangladesh situation, um, as has been authorized by the by the judges.
2: I think that was really fascinating. Um, how clear she is about the limitations of this particular situation that has been agreed by the judges and the investigation that they can have. It is only into a specific crime that has happened on the other side of the border and not happened in Myanmar. And there's been a huge kind of praise of the ICC's Office of the Prosecutor that they managed to get this investigation agreed and that they're able to look at it. But you can just hear from what she's saying, the amount of difficulty that surrounds doing that, that they have to be very clear and very precise on exactly what they can look into. and, and I know that there are a number of people who are trying to push open that door. And we did a, a podcast with Kevin John Heller where we were talking about pushing at the back door of the ICC to see if we could we could get more of these cases. And you know that there's other cases like this, but in each one, just as she says, my God, you've got to be so precise what exactly you can do and what you can't do.
1: What I thought was really interesting is that what she doesn't really say here is that we know that there is maybe a movement of NGOs who are trying to kind of push the pre-coup government who still believe that they're the recognized government of Myanmar to refer the Myanmar to the ICC which would mean they have jurisdiction over the coup and she's here very obviously saying they don't have it but i think the fact that she's at all talking about it means that that possibility has been mentioned or has has at least uh, dawned on the OTP that there might be a chance that somebody will try, kind of via the General Assembly, to to get Myanmar to either be a state party or to get some kind of referral that is signed by the pre-coup government, which I think in the UN is still the recognized government. So there's a lot of uh, uh, ways that uh, uh, the coup might still get to the get to the ICC, and she's not ruling them out. She's just saying that at the moment we can only look at this Bangladesh case very very narrowly.
2: I think that's an extraordinary idea. If you consider um, the other. Um, venue that we look at quite a lot, the International Court of Justice, where the pre-coup government in Myanmar has argued strongly against any suggestion that uh, that what they have done is anything more than um, tackle insurgency, um, and obviously rejected any claim of uh, genocide which has been brought against them. That uh, you know, it feels to me, at least, it would be a long. Uh, it's a long road for that pre-coup government to go down to to say yes look into this Rohingya situation or look into the coup or look into something that that's it's a it's a big one.
1: I, yeah I know on the other hand a referral can be quite specific huh? so you could have they could refer it just from I don't know a month before the coup and that would cut out a lot of the Rohingya stuff well there obviously that's kind of a It could be maybe considered a bad faith move, but it's actually something that they could do. So so this is like another space to watch. Uh, There's all kinds of things that could happen with this case.
2: Well, let's move on to something that's a bit more kind of absolute and clear and stuff that she has been doing.
1: I asked her about the Office of the Prosecutor's recent success stories with convictions and long sentences for Bosco in Tuganda and Dominic Ongwen, both uh, militia commanders, one in the Democratic Republic of Congo and the other in Uganda, who had long convictions also very specifically for sexual and gender-based violence. And this is something she's really proud of.
0: You see it has it has been uh, both my professional but also my personal conviction that attention more attention needs to be focused on sexual and gender-based crimes especially at this level and uh, you will note that from the time I came in as prosecutor uh, this was uh, something that I, I, I said I was going to lend more significance to of course when you When you're talking about um, crimes at this level, all crimes are important, but also the the level of attention that is given to the individual crimes is important. And I thought that sexual and gender-based crimes, crimes against and affecting children, are crimes that really we need to elevate and we need to give more focus to. And you will recall that I have policies, two policies, both on sexual and gender-based crimes, which I, uh, uh, published just a year after I came into office. This was in 2014. And we also have the policy on, on children, which also is, uh, uh, I, I think, uh, maybe two or three years after that. But this was, um, for me, important for the office to uh, um, be fully equipped to deal with these crimes in, the, in its investigations, in, in, during trial, and even after trial, appeals and uh, reparations. So I I believe that it is only that way in which first we can bring our contribution to these horrendous crimes that keep happening uh, all the time. Uh, But also it was was something that I I think that would send a strong message to not only the international, but also at the domestic level, that attention needs to be given to these crimes that we need to do our utmost to ensure that we address them. So within my office, apart from um, introducing these policies, I so also made sure that those who deal with them directly, in fact, the entire office almost, are trained on investigating and handling this, this kind of kind of crimes. And I think this has paid off because we, we made sure that from that time, as long as we have evidence in uh, to charge for sexual and gender based crimes we will ch- we will charge them and that we have been able to gather the experience to to know how to present that evidence before the judges and to uh, uh, make sure we have success in them so you you mentioned boskontaganda boskontaganda was one of them and it is his uh, as you know it resulted in his conviction and also uh, in the fact that he's one of those who've received um, very high sentences in, in ICC's history, and recently, just last week, we have had Dominic Ongen. And we've charged crimes such as sexual slavery, uh, we've, we've charged for rape, um, even against men, and uh, we've also uh, um, um, charged uh, 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 other sexual uh, uh, crimes that are committed against, uh, for instance, in Uganda against girls, sexual, enslaving those girls. And we've also uh, ensured that, uh, in fact, I I probably want to highlight this because this was also a particularly important development in in, in international criminal law. And that is the charges that we made even against Bosco Taganda. As you know, the state of international criminal law up to this point was that you charge the individual for committing the crimes against the opposite camp. But in the Boss Contaganda case, what we tried to do is to, to, to push the envelope, to say that, yes, there are crimes committed against the other camp, but there are also crimes that are committed within, within the camp that the, the, uh, the boss. And who, who protects those, those girls? Who protects those women? And we charged for that. And the charges were confirmed, but the old, but also Bosco Taganda has now been convicted of those crimes. So this, I, I believe, by pushing the envelope, by daring to go that extra step, has uh, um, contributed to a development in international uh, criminal uh, law. And uh, I would say, again, that I believe it is critically important to continue to give attention to these crimes, it's not easy to investigate. These crimes are underreported. Um, these crimes create stigmatization for those who suffer them women and, and children. And it also, with respect to children, directly affects a generation. A whole generation can be destroyed because they are con- um, recruited, they're enlisted at ages beyond, below 15. When perhaps they grow up you know, knowing nothing but to kill and to rape and to commit crimes that they are taught to commit within these conflicts. So we must continue to make sure that we continue to investigate these crimes. We continue to learn this importance that, that they deserve.
1: What I found very interesting after she said that is that at the end she's so impassioned about um, what happens to child soldiers and she said they grow up not knowing how to do anything else than to rape and to kill and to commit those crimes they were taught to commit. So I thought about criticism uh, that she's gotten from some corners saying that the office of the prosecutor went really kind of full force after Dominic Ongwen, even though he was a child soldier himself. He is a child soldier turned top um, LRA militia leader. And I I asked her what she felt about that criticism and she came out uh, quite strongly.
0: I I think um, first and foremost, I I believe the criticism that is uh, leveled against the office that we went down hard on Dominic Ongwen, I, I, I think is wrong. And I think it's unfair. And I'm saying this because we were very much aware of the circumstance of Dominic Ongwen, and uh, the fact that he was also abducted and uh, uh, made to, to to be child soldier and also to, to fight these wars. And if you will recall, even in my opening statement, this is something that we recognized. And this is something that we said, we are not going to, um, investigate Dominic Ongwen or to prosecute Dominic Ongwen for the crimes that he is alleged to have committed whilst he was still under age. And that all the crimes that we are going to charge him with, which we did, was after he, 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 he was um, no longer uh, a child, under the statute at least, and, and for, the, for those crimes. That's what we will um, co- um, prosecute for. Him for, and that's what we did. And if you look at, uh, and the evidence we led was always when Dominic Long, uh, Ongwen was no longer a child. And we did that because we have also led in evidence that there was a, was a time when Dominic Ongwen had the opportunity to leave, and he didn't. Um, he had, like other, there are several others whom we've cited who left. uh, once they realized that this is what what is happening is not good. But Dominic Ongwen was one of those who kind of glorified himself in the end, becoming a commander and committing one of the most, or some of the most brutal crimes under the history of the LRA. You will listen to the judges. When you listen to the judges uh, giving the uh, um, uh, evidence that was led before them, They have, in fact, it's one of the judgments that I believe was very, very considerate because of the position also that the prosecutor has taken to say that we are not disregarding completely the fact that Dominic Ongwen himself was a victim. But also, we are also presenting that he had an opportunity to leave and not to commit these crimes or to stop committing them, but he did not. On the, on the contrary, he just became more and more brutal and, was, and only left when he sensed that he himself was in some danger. That's when he, he, he left eventually. But otherwise, he, he committed those crimes as an adult, not as a child, and that's what we charged him with. And uh, even if you look at when we requested for sentence, you will see that we, we took again into account the fact that he, was, he could have been considered a victim and we did not ask for the full uh, sentence that is uh, uh, provided under the statutes which the judges could impose. On the other hand, when the judges delivered their judgment, they went above what we also requested for by giving him 25 years. I, I, I think this completely discredits the criticism that the, the office uh, was disregarding everything and just fully attacking uh, Dominic Ongwin and uh, without taking into account uh, the fact that he was himself abducted.
2: I think she comes up with very good arguments there and it, it makes a lot of sense, but I don't think that this debate is actually going away uh, in the end. I think there's still um, a lot of people, both in Uganda, um, in the north of Uganda, in places where Ongwen uh, was, um, victims of his, or those who are just affected by the Lord's Resistance Army insurgency generally, um, who have very different contradictory perspectives. Um, so I, I don't see it going away. Well, I, f- I felt it was really interesting. She, she got really kind of impassioned about this suggestion
1: that they were too hard on Ongwen, and you can really hear her... Uh, she's been trying to be extremely diplomatic and very uh, fair and, you know, without fear or favor, the way she likes to be through the whole interview. And here she she really felt wrong that people had suggested that. And, and uh, you could hear that she really felt um, vindicated by the judges giving him a longer sentence, which, you know, honestly surprised me that they went above the, the prosecutor. But that argument that she makes that he could have run away and he didn't. And he actually carved out a very central role for himself, apparently, you know, also resonated with the judges. I didn't only ask about the successes, I also had to ask about some of the failures or difficulties in the case against Jean-Pierre Bemba and the case against uh, Laurent Gbagbo, these trials of very high politically responsible people that are generally so, so complicated for international courts to get to the kind of higher echelon of politically responsible people and to actually get conviction. So I kind of asked her why this is such a problem for the courts, why it is so complicated.
0: I'm glad you said complicated. Um, it's, uh, it is indeed uh, extremely challenging to uh, prosecute at that level. I, I, I will accept that. And uh, this is because you have, uh, um, like in the case of Kenya, you have uh, sitting head of state who is backed by the full apparatus of the state and, and assisted in that, in that regard. What does that do for us? It, it gives huge challenges with respect to um, our presenting that evidence that we have collected before the judges uh, without having interference in that. We, we face that in the Kenya cases. Um, it also brings about huge challenges with respect to cooperation and we have faced that in the in the Kenya Kenya cases and in fact these are the two main components that brought about unfortunately the the, uh, the office not to be able to uh, bring those cases to a successful uh, close however um, as I said we pick we take lessons away from that uh, and the we've done a uh, a Kenya Lessons Learned exercise for instance, in which we've taken away some issues in which the office will also look carefully at uh, what to do in future, or, or how differently to approach it. Because the good thing with Lessons Learned is that you would see what you did well, and you will also see what you could have done better. So this is, uh, this is important for us. But yes, the challenges that you face with these, uh, those who are still in power, you've seen Sudan with President al-Bashir. We've seen the huge problems that the, the, um, the office was confronted with, the ICC was confronted with, to the extent that in the end, they were able to mobilize even uh, institutions such as the African Union to not to cooperate with the ICC for the uh, arrest of Bashir, for instance. Not to, uh, um, uh, and you have individual countries within Africa um, agitating to withdraw from the statute. You remember that we went through all of that. And I believe it's the resilience of the ICC that today we are enjoying a a much better relationship with African states. Because I I must also say something about that. African states have really been very, very supportive of the ICC. We've cooperated with African states at different levels. And contrary to what everybody is saying, that Africa is against the ICC, our experience is not... It's not that. Uh, If you recall the establishment of the ICC, it was an African state party that first ratified the Rome Statute in the whole world, Senegal. And then the first referrals that came to the ICC were from African states. And throughout this time, when we're investigating, we engage with African states, we engage with African governments, and we have huge support from them. In fact, of course, there will be time there, will, there are some difficulties sometimes and cooperation is not coming. But we notice that that only happens when there is inability to do so. So that is something I really want to place on the record, that contrary to what is being said about Africa and ICC, the contrary is, is what is true.
1: You can see she pivots very neatly away from uh saying things about Bemba and Bagbo and what went wrong there, because some of the things that she's mentioning in in this case and the troubles with Kenya and Sudan are obviously not something that she faced in those cases.
2: I know. I mean, for me, I mean, I do get what she means, that state cooperation can be really complicated. Fine. But there is the critique of how her office handled the Bemba case and the Bagbo case um is completely different and um i don't see uh, the big investigation into the lessons learned. Let's hope that quite a lot have been learnt already and that those kind of things won't won't happen again. But uh, that's not the same as state cooperation.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And while this is very interesting what she had to say, it wasn't really an answer to what I asked.
2: So did you actually get to ask the question that I asked you to? You asked me to, to come up with a question.
1: Yes, uh, you asked she- me about regrets. And uh, to quote Frank Sinatra, regrets, she has a few
2: what you see is that the,
0: the demands on the office um, continue to increase um, to the extent that we, we all agree that um, uh, d- there is a mismatch between resources and, and, and the demands. Um, as a result, there definitely are, are things that we could have done, um, maybe more expediently um, or uh, uh, sooner, or even at all, than uh, which, are, which are there, and unfortunately, we have not been able to do that, not by choice, but because we have constraints. We have res- resource constraints, maybe security issues. The pandemic has just come to add to the several problems and challenges that we face. So those are some of the, the things that I really regret. Um, And I I just want to uh, clarify that it has never been about turning the other way. You know, it's never been that. We have uh, made efforts. We've really gone as much as we can to ensure that whatever we're supposed to do, we try to do it. But it's not always possible. So these ones I, I really do regret, either because it's not done or because we've not Made the progress that I wanted us to to make in the those, those are really things that i I, I regret that hasn 't happened, and as I, as I said it 's not because of not wanting to do it or, or turning the other way, but because we just do not have the adequate resources to make the progress that we wanted to make
2: yeah, well, she hands over to um, Kareem Khan, her successor, um, quite a number of um, unfunded uh, investigations that uh, that she set up. I think she is also very much a person
1: who does really things out of conviction. And and so she thinks it's right to do all this and probably finds it hard to choose between the things that she does and the things that she doesn't. And that's what I really felt in this regret that she would have liked to have done so much more, but she just didn't have the means. We ended up our interview also with the very news agency type of question of what she would tell her successor, Karim Khan, to look out for, especially in getting that oh-so-important state cooperation that she already talked about, how hard it is when that's lacking.
0: I think first and foremost, the actions that you take are critically important. The actions that you take, the decisions that you make, the decisions must always be rooted in the statute, your law your rules, that's what your, your primary and only consideration should be. Um, if you start um, thinking about uh, the political considerations, oh, maybe I should do this because of this, this is a slippery slope. This cannot, you cannot even think of doing that much more, do that as a prosecutor. These considerations cannot form part of what we do. It becomes very difficult. Because always, as you know, passions are high. When we are doing these cases, um, it is in circumstances that are highly politically charged. We know that. So passions are very high. And every action that we take is always um, judged by, is because of this political reason or that political reason. That is how they judge the work that we do. But that that is not the case. And we have to stay away completely from that, from using any political consideration to come to a decision. So I I, I think this is uh, critically important. Otherwise, you will lose the credibility of this institution. And uh, as as I said, it's just a slippery slope. You know, if you do it for this case, you may do it for another case. And then what is really, uh, what does this institution really stand for? It was created for accountability. It was created that nobody is above the law, no matter what your political, uh, um, uh, or what position you hold in government or outside of government, it doesn't matter. We were were asked, this this institution was set up to look at these crimes, very serious crimes which we all say shock the conscience of humanity. So we look at those crimes and we look at it objectively, we look at it impartially, It is not supposed to be based on politics. It is supposed to be based on the fact that the crimes have been committed and somebody is accountable for those crimes, no matter who you are.
2: I love the idea of this objectivity and impartiality. Um, I, I think it must be terribly important to bear that in mind. But my goodness, the ICC operates in a political world and the idea that you can't take politics into consideration... On any level, that doesn't really um, doesn't really make sense to me. I can't think it's at all practical. I'm sure that that you have to at least have knowledge of the politics around because otherwise, how can you even do your investigation? So there's something very odd about about making that distinction but i'm i'm sure she meant it slightly differently
1: well i mean that's also what struck me you know of course uh, the the office of the prosecutor wants to be impartial and they don't want politics involved but i think they realize on some level that politics are always involved but they have to at least be seen as being non-political but i i had the impression that also she was quite shocked by some of the political pressures. Uh, last year, um, the former US administration under the former President Trump uh, imposed sanctions on her. And it seems that they really affected her. They, she really felt that they were deeply unfair uh, and also mentioned that it kind of put her on the same level as the criminals she was supposed to bring to justice. And that was really, really wrong. And it, it shouldn't have happened. I it's it's kind of my interpretation, but I I had this sense that she really didn't feel that states would go that far in their kind of political opposition to the court because she has this really unshakable belief in international justice and that it's the right thing to do, uh, which, of course, is obviously the kind of attitude I think you must have to want to be the prosecutor of an institution like the ICC but there um yeah for me that was also a sense of a you didn't think they were going to play dirty political games like uh yeah that's that's probably what they do and um as she reflected a bit more in this final clip that we're going to play on Khan and kind of drowning out the outside noise and the uh, the pressure and, and and threats that that come with the job uh,
0: there's a lot to be done and um uh, knowing uh, Mr Khan uh, he's also a very dedicated uh, and well accomplished person for the for the position. Um, I I think that he would again just hit go and hit the ground running and uh, continue. I'm sure with the same uh, dedication that we have also uh, given to this. I um, something that I have personally experienced, which you have mentioned quite a few times, is the pressure. And the uh, um, attacks and politicization and everything. I, I think this is something that he will also be very well prepared uh, to take that on board because we're here as prosecutors. Uh, we, are, we are momentary and transient and what we do in this office is critically important. History will judge us and uh, I, I believe that uh, we must always uh, make sure that this institution um, is, continues to be supported by states parties. So I would ask that he works very hard on engaging with the states parties. That support is important, or, and also non-state parties, for, for this uh, uh, noble institution to continue to be able to do its work and deliver justice as it was, it was meant to be. I do believe also, as uh, prosecutors or leaders in this institution, um, we should not be affected by personal attacks, criticisms, or even praise. We, we, we just have to do our work. The politics are there. They will attempt to politicize that. Just drown that out. Rise above it and do what, uh, what you're supposed to do, strictly in accordance with uh, the dictates of the statute.
2: So did you manage to get to ask some of our standard uh, asymmetrical haircuts questions? What's she reading? No,
1: unfortunately, because it wasn't an official asymmetrical haircuts interview, I couldn't uh, check what she's been watching, sadly. She did uh, show that she was keeping up with pop culture, um, uh, jokingly telling us Ben Suda out and making that kind of mic drop uh, gesture just before the picture was taken that we'll put up in the liner notes but that's why I'm grinning like a like a lunatic in that picture because I just imagined her doing that in the kind of handover ceremony to Karim Khan where she's like thank you judges ben suda out and I was like oh you must do this but uh, we'll we'll see on the um, i think it's the 15th or the 16th that they will have some kind of handover and we will we will see if she does that. And if she does do that, we'll certainly put it in our, our new intro that we're working on. But
2: uh... I... I'd be very surprised. I'm sure it'll be very stately as these things tend to be at the ICC. But anyway, well, well done for uh, managing to get hold of her. I'm sure it took a lot of effort to do it and uh, for managing to complete the interview. And thanks to Reuters for letting us to uh, able to use some of your clips.
1: We'll come back to you later and uh, have another episode, hopefully also with the new prosecutor, or at least the expectations of what uh, he will all have to do. Thank you. Bye bye thanks bye this podcast was created and presented by janet anderson and stephanie van den Berg. it is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net you can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com it is recorded in the hague humanity hub home to a community of innovators in the field of peace justice development and humanitarian action Music is by audionautics.com, and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.